Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. There's a church in Nashville whose mission is to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in the city. And I love our mission statement, but that is good. I'll say it again. Our mission, according to this church, is to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in the city. If the local church is on God's mission, the real Jesus cannot be ignored. We're walking through this ancient sermon called Hebrews. And I think of this mission statement when I read Hebrews, because like all good sermons, Hebrews makes the real Jesus non-ignorable. I don't know what conceptions of Jesus you have coming in, what has been built into you in your youth, but Hebrews makes certain that you encounter the real Jesus. You can turn to me to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning if you have your Bible. We also have scripture journals you could use. We're starting in verse 1, and this morning we will encounter the real Jesus as the perfect high priest. And I don't know what you think of when you hear that word high priest, but it is very good news. And let me read, we'll pray, and we'll find out why. This is God's word. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we just heard Julianne read for us. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn information this morning from your word, but that we would actually see the beauty of Jesus, our high priest, and that we would actually sing in our hearts of who he is. 
that worship and glad obedience would flow as a result of an encounter with your word, with you, Jesus. And it's in your name we ask this. Amen. So growing up, I was always the rule follower. Anybody else? I was always the rule follower. It became kind of my calling card. It became kind of my identity. I remember my high school social studies class. My teacher once said to me in front of the whole class, Joe, you love dogma, don't you? And that wasn't like, you know, like offensive to me. It didn't embarrass me. It was actually pretty accurate. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess I do. This carried over into college. I was a rule follower in my fraternity. So that my fraternity brothers started to apologize to me for cussing, even when I wasn't in their presence. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> And this even carries over into today. A few years, like a few years ago, I ran a local 5K race in our neighborhood, and my neighbors had a great time uh, telling a lot of jokes because I had chosen to run this 5K in sandals, and so the Jesus jokes were flowing. <laughs> oh, Pastor Joe wearing Jesus sandals. Okay, so what this means is I have a complicated relationship with the word obedience. I have a complicated relationship, especially to the idea of obedience to Jesus. As a rule follower, I have no problem with the concept of obedience. I'm tempted simply, though, to obey Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And this is a problem because the reason we obey matters. We can't avoid this in the scriptural testimony. The reason we matter, the reason we obey matters. He wants our heart. I tend to go to one or the other extreme in my own life. I can obey Jesus to get love. So deep down I am hungry for love. Deep down I'm hungry for the peace that comes from that love. God's love, my parents' love my peers' love and their admiration, whatever that is. And I think that if I obey the rules, if I obey and obey some more, folks will love me. Other times, I obey Jesus to get level. Sometimes it's to get love. Other times, it's to get level. So I can feel ashamed. I make a mistake that I can't forget about. I hurt someone else with my actions. I hate how that feels. And so in my mind, I think that I've dug a hole, and what I need to do is obey Jesus so that that hole gets filled up back to level again. In both cases, obeying Jesus becomes a means to an end, doesn't it? I reflect my dog, Dewey, in those moments, because Dewey does not obey me out of love, I don't think. Dewey seemingly, by all evidences, obeys me for food. 100%. I'm not romantic when it comes to doggies. And so my obedience to Jesus becomes kind of like a rung on a ladder to something else. And I can almost step on Jesus to get to what I think is after him. And what is behind him. And what he's kind of guarding that I really want. And this can't be right. That can't be right, right? That's not what the Lord is calling us all to when He calls us to obedience, is it? 
I can't be alone on this. I think we all have a complicated relationship to obedience. Outside of church, I can't think of a more unpopular word in our cultural moment than obedience. Unless you're talking about dog training. But we're not, okay? Uh, Obedience is a bad word. Why? Because if authenticity is a cardinal virtue in our cultural moment, obedience seems to be the shadow side of that. It seems to be what gets in the way of living authentic lives, doesn't it? It seems to be our society's cardinal sin. Obedience. It's an enemy, we think. To freedom. Obedience is an enemy, we think, to authenticity. And we could call this approach, forgive the pun, no obedience. Okay? There's one worse coming, so we're going to Inside the church, we don't struggle with no obedience. We don't struggle inside the church because we know obedience matters. So like me, I think most of us struggle with what we could call obedience. There it is, sorry. <laughs> We obey Jesus, right? But for all kinds of messed up motivations. And understandable even motivations. Well, here's the thing. The big idea of Hebrews is what? Do you remember? It's really persevering faith. Sustainable faith. Not just opening our empty hands of faith to Jesus, but kind of once we lay hold of Jesus, gripping onto him with tenacity. Even when we're kind of on a tilted world, everything is pulling him away from us and us away from him. So it feels. But I want to say this. Hebrews is about more than hanging on. It's also about obedience. Why? Because that is what hanging on looks like. We don't just want true and lasting faith. What do we want? We want true and lasting obedience. We could call it authentic obedience. And so this morning, I want to explore the key to lasting and true obedience. Authentic obedience. I wonder, as I was reading aloud our passage, if you noticed the call to obedience in this text. I would forgive you if you didn't, because it's only four English words. Verse 9. All who obey Him. And so here are four words about our obedience to Jesus nestled among, I did the math, 224 words about one thing, one person, Jesus. If you're wondering, that's a 1 to 57 ratio. I think. According to Google, it's a 1 to 57 ratio. Google's calculator. So this is instructive, actually. This is instructive, I think. For every 57 words about Jesus, there is one about our obedience. We get 2% of the airtime in this part of the sermon. And Jesus gets 98% of the airtime in this part of Hebrews' sermon. That by itself preaches, friends. And I want to suggest this morning that the key to true and lasting obedience is this ratio. It's all about Jesus. And two things in particular in this passage are highlighted about Jesus that matter for our obedience. It's his office and it's his obedience. The key to authentic obedience is lies in the office of Jesus and in the obedience of Jesus. Let's take each in turn. 
There are three Old Testament offices. Not like places you sit with a computer, but roles. Prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews tells us time and time again that Jesus fulfills all three offices perfectly. We spent a long time, a year, going through the whole Bible, book at a time. And we encountered all three offices. So it is such a glory to sit in Hebrews and see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophets, the fulfillment of all of the kings, the fulfillment of all of the priests. And that's what Hebrews is talking about this morning. Now, a quick refresher on the priesthood of the Bible. Priests were like these human to divine hinges. Or an usher. They ushered people to God. The hinge flowing this direction. And they ushered the presence of God to people. Like a hinge. They went both ways. This example feels super irreverent, but I'm going to go there. Um, when we were in Disney, we were waiting in line to see Elsa. Princess, right? Princess Elsa? She princess? Forgive me. Okay. Um, she had this special person attending her at all times. And we waited in line, and this special person was like, Elsa's ready to meet you, right? And then they ushered you into her throne room, basically, her presence. It was kind of like the Holy of Holies of Disney, actually, in those days, especially. And we would be ushered into that and be like, oh, you know, and here's Elsa in the flash, right? Anyway, so this person that would be with Elsa at all times, they had this hinge or this usher office. This is the big idea of priesthood. And so there are three levels of priests that we discover in the Old Testament. All of Israel was a priesthood, actually. The whole thing. All of God's people were called to usher humans to God and bring God to the nations. As a kingdom of priests. And that is referring to every single Israelite. But the next you have the tribe of Levi who were God's specialized priests. And they were called again to usher humans to God. And they represented humans to God. They themselves, as we read, were sinners. They themselves were strugglers, just like the rest of Israel. And so they represented the ordinary Israelite to God. But they also ushered God to the people, teaching God's word, living a set-apartness that reflected something about the set-apartness of God, His holiness. They ate fellowship meals, which symbolized and which reflected and really enfleshed the idea that God was dining with his people. They accepted sacrifices. So again, to give folks a like a real tangible reminder that God has accepted their sacrifice. In all these ways, they're hinging God towards people. And then you have the family of Aaron, who were the high priests. And they alone on Yom Kippur, on the, on the most holy day, had access to the presence of God in the most holy place. In verses 1 through 4 of our text this morning, if you just take a look again, 
gives this great definition of this role. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, Hebrews says, to offer gifts and sacrifices to sins. And this person can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because they themselves are beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins as he does those of the people. And that happened on the day of atonement. Atonement. A four-letter word simply means being restored to relationship with God. But they also ushered the reality of God to humanity. So do you see it in this text? They ushered humanity to God, chosen among them, verse 1. They acted on behalf of them, verse 1. They offered sacrifices and gifts of them, and, and they were of them because they themselves had to offer sacrifices to themselves, and then they ushered the reality of God to humanity as well. I love this from a scholar. Aaron's garments and anointing, the color and structure of his garments revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, corresponded closely to many elements in the likewise revealed tabernacle design, the house of God. Further, Aaron's anointing with oil, which symbolized the anointing of God's Spirit, paralleled the infilling of the tabernacle with the glory of Spirit of God. Aaron is seen to be, catch this, a mini tabernacle, a shortened version of God's dwelling place among his people. And so in the same way that Aaron would, in a way, Aaron's family after him, the high priest, would reflect and represent humanity to God, we see that Aaron and Aaron's family and the high priesthood was meant to reflect something of God, a mini tabernacle, a walking temple to God's people and to the whole world. See, priests were hinges. Do you see it now? And Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is the perfect hinge, the perfect priest. Jesus represents humanity. We just saw that. He stands among us. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. He entered into our lives. He lived among us as one of us. He doesn't hold his nose when he does that because he himself is in flesh this very moment. He bears the scars of his crucifixion and always will. He's not embarrassed of bodies. He's not embarrassed of creation. It's his creation. And he stands among us. He stood among us in every single way except breaking God's heart. Sin. And Jesus not only represents humanity, he represents God. Of course he does because he is fully human and also fully God. Jesus as a great, perfect high priest is not just a lowercase in mini tabernacle. No, John says God pitched his tent among us in Jesus. That's a tabernacle. Jesus is a walking temple. He is the presence of God before anyone who encounters him. If you want to see what God is like, look to Jesus. That's John. And more than that, Jesus gives us access. The reason we can go boldly into the presence of God is because Jesus, as high priest, offers a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, as verse 1 describes. But he doesn't continually offer this sacrifice for his own sins because Jesus has no sin. 
Instead, he does one. What does he do? He offers himself as the perfect Lamb of God for our sins. This is one reason why Hebrews compares Jesus to the strange ancient future, the ancient figure called Melchizedek. I'm going to use this mic now. So if you look at verses 5 through 6, you'll notice that Melchizedek has four verses, really, in the entire Bible. So in Genesis, you'll encounter this ancient figure named Melchizedek. And we're going to get to know Melchizedek in chapter 7 of Hebrews, so just plug through your seatbelts for that. But for now, what matters is that this figure, Melchizedek, was a king of Jerusalem before David in Abraham's day. And he was also a priest of God before Aaron. In Abraham's day. And so he uniquely prepares us for Jesus. The royal son of God. Jesus. The king of Jerusalem. Jesus. And the holy priest of God. Jesus. The perfect high priest. Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is from the line of Judah. Which makes him a true king. But how can Jesus also be true priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Have you ever thought about that? It would be on the minds of the original audience. Let's just say that. Many scholars point out, actually, that the original audience, if they were Jewish Christians, they would have thought, how on earth can Jesus be priest? He's from David's line. Priests had to be from Aaron's line. High priest. How does that work? And well... The preacher of Hebrews says, answer, he's of a different order. My heart worships when I think about that. That's amazing. Four verses in in the book of Genesis signposting us to Jesus and his perfect priesthood. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's been said that for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Well, if I did my math right in this passage, for every one look at yourself, take 57 of Jesus, the perfect high priest. If Jesus is your high priest, you are okay. All right? I love this, and I say it often, as David Zoll likes to ask, what is the source of your okayness right now? You know, when someone asks you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm okay. Why? Are you okay? Why are you okay? Maybe ask yourself that question right now. What is the source of your okayness? When hardship comes, or when good things come, what is your anchor? What keeps you steady? What is your comfort? Well, if Jesus is your high priest, you are okay. If Jesus is not your high priest, then you will pursue all kinds of other pseudo-priests in your life. I think we all kind of intuitively understand that we just don't have direct access to God. We're all looking for God. We can't just go straight. We need a go-between. And so much of life is seeking for these in-betweens, these go-betweens, these hinges, these things that can bring us near God, even the most... um, 
unchurched person in your in your life has a go-between, has a pseudo-priest that they are trusting in that will make them feel okay or at least give them into the foothills of the divine. And friends, that can be functionally ourselves, even us who know Jesus and who have Jesus as our high priest. It's when we settle upon anything else besides Jesus, our high priest, for our okayness. What is that? What is that temptation for you? Is it comfort? Is it prestige? Is it money? Which gives you those two things, or at least promises it. All of these things are very, very bad priests. They don't represent the true God, and they cannot usher you into His presence. Only Jesus can. And I think, friends, this is the only key and the lasting key to lasting obedience. We don't obey Jesus to get His love, do we? We have it already. Because of His office. High priest. There's another key in this passage to our obedience, and it's the obedience of Jesus. Take a look at verses 7 through 10 with me again. This section is all about the obedience of Jesus on our behalf, which is at least three things. His obedience was costly. His whole life was a life of obedience to his Father in heaven. All of it. But verse 7 takes us to the Garden of Gethsemane, before the crucifixion, where Jesus confronts how costly his obedience will be. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him. From death. Jesus is confronting at the garden in this moment. He's confronting that moment where he realizes how costly his obedience will be. He must drink the cup of God's covenant curses on our behalf. Philip Hughes says the agony of Christ at Gethsemane was occasioned by something other and deeper than the fear of physical death. For what he faced was not simply a painful death, but also judgment. The judgment of a holy God against him. Our sin. His obedience was costly. Second, his obedience was godly. His prayer of submission. Remember in Gethsemane, Jesus says, um, if you can, Lord, take this cup away from me. And then he finishes his prayer with these words, nevertheless, your will be done. That prayer of submission was heard because of his reverence, Hebrews preacher says. Jesus was the most reverent sufferer to ever live. He was God in flesh. And so he demonstrates and actually enables what we could call reverent suffering. His desire to do God's will enabled him to keep trusting. Especially when he got hard. Which is why ultimately his obedience was saving. His perfect life of obedience led him to the curse of the cross. Think about that. His perfect life of obedience led him to the curse of the cross. That was why he came. For the joy set before him. For all of our disobedience, Paul says, Paul, the apostle says, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the second Adam, many will be made righteous. 
And the preacher of Hebrews says this makes his perfect obedience the what? The source of our salvation. Why are we saved? Because of our obedience? No. We are saved because of the source of our salvation, which is the obedience of Jesus. I have a friend who likes to take me paddleboarding down the Olentangy River, which can be done. It's fun. It's possible. I don't open my mouth when I fall in. <laughs> you know? You don't know what's in that river. They are cleaning it up though. It occurred to me the other day that I have no idea where the Olentangy River begins. Do you guys have any idea? Where this like feature in my life, every single day I see the Olentangy. I, I encounter it every day. I don't know where it begins. Anybody, anybody know? Yeah, you do. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Apparently it begins in Gallon County, which is a great name for a river to begin. Gallon County? Gallon? I think so. <laughs> the only reason we could paddleboard, this is my point, down the Olentangy River is because of Gallon County. That's it. And this helps me in a way understand verse 9. The only way I can truly obey, the only reason I can truly obey is if I am downstream from the source of my salvation. The perfect obedience of Jesus. The perfect obedience of Jesus is like a river mouth. And any obedience that I have is because I am downstream from that. The current of his obedience is what I take part in when I obey. Theologians like to talk about the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. The active obedience of Jesus is all the ways that Jesus positively obeys God's will. And then the passive obedience of Jesus is all the ways that Jesus endures the impact, endures the penalties, the covenant curses, just the fact of the world being fallen and broken, he absorbs and he endures these realities because of our disobedience. His active obedience, he's just positively loving the Lord and loving others perfectly. His passive obedience, he is sort of living in this broken world and enduring the penalties of our disobedience. And both are his obedient posture. So Lazarus, when he confronts Lazarus and he kind of bellows out in tears because of what he sees with death, the death of his friend, the agony in the face of his friend's death, that is passive obedience. Staying alive to the brokenness of his creation, to the brokenness that our sin brought into this world. And not only that, the agony, as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, is also his passive obedience. He was in, in confronting a death for sins not his own. And he still faithfully followed the will of God. See, the key to our obedience is resting and receiving in that passive and active obedience of Jesus. One ancient commentator says this about verse 8. Take a look. By his passive obedience, Jesus learned active obedience. Jesus, the perfect high priest, okay, who obeys for you. I think this alone changes how we obey Jesus. 
How can we no longer obey to get something? Our obedience now is an expression of freedom and gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us. We start to want to obey. So think about this. Humans are all obeying somebody or something. The question isn't, are we obeying something or somebody? The question is, who are we obeying? What are we obeying? And this text would tell you, only Jesus brings freedom. When you fail him, it's been said, he doesn't condemn you. And when you're faithful, it's worship. It's worship. Jesus is our perfect high priest. And so I just want to close our time by asking this question. What does obedience look like? And if we're exploring the priesthood of Jesus, then I want to suggest that one posture of our obedience, as we think about obedience, as we think about obeying the scriptures, as we think about obeying the call of Jesus in our life, I would love for you to think about that in terms of priesthood. Because, because Israel is called a kingdom of priests, and Peter reflects that same language in the New Testament, calls the church a kingdom of priests. That hasn't changed. Y'all are still have a calling, which is a priesthood calling. All of you. And so if Jesus is our perfect high priest, what I want to suggest is that we can now fulfill our priestly calling. Think of priests this way again. Walking temples and walking signposts. Priests are walking temples. We, like Aaron, like Jesus, are mini tabernacles, right? So let me ask you this question. Number one, did you know the Holy Spirit is among us and within you? And that makes you a walking tabernacle? Which means everyone you talk to today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life is in a, in a way encountering the true God through you, through your life. And that God loves it that way. That's why he gave the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it's better than I leave so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. And we're called the temple of the living God, the church. You are a walking temple in, a, in respect because you are in the true walking temple, Jesus. And so think about that. As you go about your day, who is encountering the true God through my life? But priests are also walking signposts. Like Israel, we're called to point others to the presence of God. That's the other direction of the hinge. And so let me ask you this. Are you pointing others to Jesus? Like priests of old, you've got to be gentle because you yourself are a sinner. That's what it says in the first section of chapter 5. We must be weak. We're not showing the world that we're awesome. We're showing the world where our source of salvation is. We're pointing upstream. The church we point to is not a club of rule followers. We're a club of sinners saved by grace who now obeys for the joy. Lord, would you make that true in our life this morning? As we reflect on what it means to be in you, Jesus, the true temple and flesh, help us now to reflect on what that means for our day to day, what our obedience looks like now. We now bring to you our life as a living sacrifice.
for you, then, our priest. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org. Thank you.